0: All right, happy Wednesday evening to y'all. Trust everything's going well. Hey. <laughs> so tonight we're going to continue our study in Calvinism and specifically the doctrines of Reformed theology with our second letter of the Tulip Acrostic. And we're going to be talking about unconditional election. Um, this is one where we're going to start to get into the weeds a little bit tonight. Uh, And if you missed last week or if you missed any other weeks for that matter, we do have all the lessons up on Spotify and also Apple if you search for uh, on the podcast app, if you search for First Baptist Church of Jackson, it's the one with our purple logo as a church. And so uh, you can get caught up with that. There's going to be a lot of things that we talk about tonight that I don't have time to go back and necessarily qualify from the previous weeks. Um, So if there's anything that you're kind of missing some of those connections, feel free to talk to me afterward and get caught up with the other lessons as well. Uh, But it goes right into what we talked about last week into unconditional election. So let's go ahead and pray before we dive into this topic and especially diving into the scriptures and asking God for the wisdom that we need this evening. Lord, um, there's a lot of things on my heart and mind and and it just seems like each week there's always some things that are uh, competing for my time and my attention and and, um, and just different different areas of my heart, and and these things are, are very, very important, so I pray, God, that you would help us to have great clarity tonight uh, on this particular subject. It's very difficult at times with things that are very um, heavy theological topics, Um to bring clarity out of it. But that's really where we really trust in your word. Your word brings things to light that we as human beings can make very confusing. Uh, The issue is we need to have a heart that is ready to hear what you have to say, ready to believe what you have written above anything that we think or feel, or even the traditions that we're used to following, uh, maybe some baggage from previous ministries, churches, experiences, Uh, religions, whatever it may be, we really need to let your word reign supreme. Uh, We spent plenty of time in the previous weeks just talking about how your word needs to be the standard. It needs to be the thing that causes um, just great clarity in the midst of confusion, because you are not the author of confusion. And so God, I pray tonight that you would just help us and give us wisdom and help us to see the things that you want us to see and really dispel all the, the fog around this topic that can be so easily created. Um, because God, we, we know that you are a God that wants us to understand. Understanding is key in the way that you have communicated to us. We can understand clearly and with confidence. So we ask for that tonight. Uh, guide my thoughts, guide my heart, and uh, help me to say the things that you want me to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we talked about the T in the tulip acrostic, and that is total depravity, which the Calvinist believes this, related to that, that every man and woman is so totally depraved in their sin that they are completely incapable of responding in a positive manner to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for sure, the Bible says that we are depraved in our sin. We would agree with that. That This sin that we have is inherited from our great-grandfather, Adam, and it's also our personal sin that gets in the way, but not to the extent that we're unable to humble our own selves and our own free will to God and receive the gospel and be saved. And we spent plenty of time last week establishing that. And so it's not the fact that we are depraved. We certainly believe that. I mean, if there's any person, I mean, just look in the mirror and take some time and sit down and just think of all the ways that you have sinned against God, and you would know that you are depraved. But we are not so totally depraved that we are as a dead man that cannot hear and cannot respond. And the scriptures are very clear on that, although they would also say the exact same thing. And so all you need to do is just look at the Bible and read what it says in its proper context, which we spent a lot of time last week talking about that. So here's here's the reality of it, though understanding the calvinistic perspective is critical for us to make sense of their beliefs of unconditional election so you have to really understand how they look at total depravity in order to have some kind of sense or reason why they would believe this next doctrine of unconditional election because they go hand in hand if you cannot respond then god must do the work he has to be the one that selects people for salvation But as we see, and we will see this tonight, we have to measure this against the standard of our King James Bible as our final and only authority. And you will see that unconditional election is completely false. Completely false. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. So I mentioned last week that each week I want to open up with a passage of Scripture, and specifically, as much as I can, using Jesus Christ, because He was the one, God Himself, magnified the authority of the written word of God. And one of our verses in the previous weeks that we didn't get the chance to get to is John chapter five and verse 39. John chapter five and verse 39. So he's talking with the Sadducees and Pharisees, religious leaders, the scribes, and what he says is fantastic. And he says in verse 39, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So not only in Matthew chapter 4 where you have the devil tempting him and he says, it is written, it is written, it is written, but in John 5 it's the same thing. He's like, listen, search the scriptures. They give sufficient evidence that I am who I say I am, but search the scriptures, which would have been a total insult to them, by the way, because they knew their Bible, supposedly. And they may have known it intellectually, but they didn't know their Bible. And that is critical, because you will find this among Calvinists and other people that believe in false doctrine. They may know Scripture the way they want to know Scripture, but they have never truly searched the Scriptures. When you allow yourself to be someone that is a Bible believer, and you search the Scriptures, you are letting the Bible say what it says. You are not telling the Bible what it says. It's a big difference. Big difference. So tonight we're going to talk about unconditional election. Unconditional election. And this is our second out of five within this acrostic. Unconditional election. So the first thing that we have to do is that we have to define it. And as we did last week, we are going to define it on their terms. So I have three definitions here, and you'll be able to see the the commonality between all three. The first one is from Grace to You, which is John MacArthur's organization. And this definition of unconditional election says this. Election is the act of God whereby in eternity past he chose those who will be saved. Election is unconditional because it does not depend on anything outside of God, such as good works or foreseen faith. And they quote Romans 9, verse 16, which they take completely out of context. We're going to get to that later. This doctrine is repeatedly taught in the Bible and is also demanded by our knowledge of God. The ultimate question of why God chose some for salvation and left others in their sinful state is one that we, with our finite knowledge, cannot answer. I'm, I'll just save my comments for later. <laughs> Second definition. And this is from the Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith, which is the church that John Piper started and pastored for approximately 30 years. And he says this, and they say this, we believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace which was given through his son, Jesus Christ, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance in saving faith in his son, Christ Jesus. And then lastly, your Ministries, R.C. Sproul, this is what he says. The reformed view of election, known as unconditional election, means that God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that induces him to save us. Rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. If you ask me why I came to faith and why I'm in the kingdom and my friends aren't, I can only say to you, I don't know. But this much I do know. It is not something I did to deserve it. It is not some condition that I met in my flesh. The only answer I can give is the grace of God. If the Bible teaches anything over and over again, it is that salvation is of the Lord. This is at the heart of Reformed theology. So here's the deal. And I have a very hard time with this because I remember, before I get to our video and we get into the rest of our lesson, I remember this was one thing that I really struggled with. Back when I was younger and I was learning about Reformed theology and this concept was brought to my attention, this never sat right with me, never, never. It made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And I, and I get there are things that I have to mature in, and I'm not going to always understand things about God. But here's the thing. When it comes to the doctrine of salvation, God is very clear about salvation because it is important. When I think about passages such as, you know, not just John 3.16, but 2 Peter 3.9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's heartbeat behind the gospel. So when God authored and finished the gospel, he would make it in such a way that is very understandable. It is not rocket science. In fact, Jesus says it's so easy to understand that even a child can believe. And it is true, 100%. You know, when I think back over my testimony, and I've doubted my salvation over the years, but when I think back on the moment that I got saved, the moment that I clearly understood the gospel, it was when I was five years old. There are several moments in my life as a young child that I remember, remember crystal clear, and that was one of them. And it wasn't, you know, some people have the testimony of, you know, I only got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. Okay, like, absolutely. But, but when I think about that moment, when I, when I finally understood, when, I, when, I, when the light bulb just went off in my head, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt as a five-year-old boy that if I did not have Jesus Christ as my Savior, I would not make it. I understood that clear as a bell, and I knew that I needed him, and I knew that I needed to call upon him to save me. I knew that. So this gospel that God offers is not something that is complex, and the one thing that frustrates me so much about Calvinism is that you will have Calvinists that will go out and preach the gospel, and they'll preach the gospel honestly, and they'll do it even biblically, but then after you get saved, well, they say, well, here's what actually happened to you, And that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Ephesians 1 is the clearest place in the Bible that tells you what happens at the moment of salvation. And we talked about that last week. We're going to hit it again tonight. It's when you hear the gospel, when you hear the word of truth, and after hearing it, you believe it, and then you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The scriptures are clear on that issue. And yet they say, well, that's, this is what actually happened to you. And so I get frustrated at this because they can give all these other answers and they're super smart and very intelligent. But when it comes to something like this, why did God select me and pass over others? I don't know. Well, I don't, well, you seem to be able to give an answer on everything else on this doctrine. Why in the world can't you give me a solid answer on this? It makes no sense to me. Why in the world would God, I mean, to, to put it in the parameters of the Calvinistic mind, you would have to say, okay, before any person was ever even born, before anyone was ever even alive, that God somehow blinded His His sovereign will, which He can foresee everything. So He all, He just decided, you know what? I'm going to take a blindfold. I'm going to do a God-sized blindfold over my sovereignty, and before and, and, and when it comes to my foreknowledge, and I am just going to at random, I'm going to pick. I need uh, you know two million people or two billion people that are going to be part. Of my kingdom. So I'm just going to go and I'm, I'm going to select them. And it's not because of anything that they are going to do or anything. It's just because I want them and that's it. And those are the people that I'm going to select. And then as far as everybody else, too bad. I can't, I can't I, I, how in the world? I don't, it, it just, it makes no sense to me at all. Like, why would God, why would he do something like that? It, it it boggles my mind. And it begins here. I can understand the elements of, of total depravity, but unconditional election, and then leading into limited atonement, which we're going to get to next week, and then irresistible grace. It is just like one trip after another into just crazy town. That's really what it really seems like to me. And so this is going to get into the weeds of it where we, we have to kind of we have, in, in order for us to get where they're coming from, you've got to understand their perspective on total depravity and how that naturally then leads into unconditional election. And so what I want you to see now is I want you to see a, a video. It's about four minutes long. It's of John MacArthur. He was answering a question during a Q&A session. And you can start to see how their doctrine begins to shape everything else that they think and they believe. And so go ahead.
1: please listen carefully to, I think, a thoughtful, balanced response from Dr. John MacArthur at an event from give or take about a decade ago regarding Calvinism versus Arminianism. Now, you're probably one or the other. If not, this will be a bit of an introduction to you. Might I ask both camps, both sides, to at least consider what Dr. John MacArthur is setting forth? Uh, Let me
2: do it this way. Okay, I'm going to give you a little test. Okay, Um, Do you believe that God is sovereign in salvation? Of course. We went through that today. Do you believe God chooses who will be saved? Of course. Do you believe the Father draws? Yes. Do you believe that the the Son keeps? Yes. Do you believe the Son raises? Yeah. It's all sovereign. It's all predestined. It's all established. Absolutely right. This is what the Bible says. Uh, Do you believe that um, whosoever will may come? Yes. This is what the Bible says. Yes. do you believe that God finds no pleasure in the death and judgment of the wicked? Yes. Uh, do you believe that uh, Jesus wept because sinners wouldn't repent? Of course. Uh, you, are you willing to call all sinners to repent? And do you believe they're responsible if they don't come? Yes. Well, how, how, how do you harmonize that? I don't know. I don't know how to harmonize that. Well, you're, expect, you're asking too much of me. I'm not God. You want my little peanut pea pusillanimous... Brain to grasp that? Give me a break. It's not my problem. But the one thing I can't do is, is deny what Scripture says. Uh, this will comfort you. Who wrote Romans? This is basic. Christianity 101 here. Who wrote Romans? Can't answer the question, can you? Why? All of Paul? All his vocabulary? All his heart? All his thoughts? All his words? All of God? And yet not mechanical? uh, Since you did so well on that question, I'll ask you another one. Um, Who lives your Christian life? God, so you want to hold him responsible for the condition of your Christian life? Who lives your Christian life? This is pretty, it's pretty basic, right? You're doing it right now, every day. Who's living your Christian life? You say, I am. Really? You say, God is. I don't know whether you can convince everybody who knows you. You can't even answer that question. Listen to what Paul said. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I. He didn't know either. He said, this is the divine mystery. It's all of me and all of him. And what's wrong is me and what's right is him. In every major doctrine of the Bible, in every major doctrine, you have an apparent paradox that you cannot resolve. I know that I'm kept eternally, secured by God, but I also know I'm commanded to persevere in faith. Two sides of the same thing. I know I can't be saved unless I'm chosen and called, and I know I can't be saved unless I'm willing to repent and believe. I don't have to harmonize it, but nor can I deny those things. And in the end, mark it, folks, in the end, God will get all the glory for every righteous thing that is done because it is all His work. So, rather than answering the question by removing your confusion, I just spread your confusion over a wider area. (laughs) And you rest in the fact that you don't need to grasp the mysteries that are clear in the mind of eternal God.
1: God elects it's clear man has genuine human responsibility it's clear how do you reconcile friends you don't need to they're already reconciled even if we cannot grasp it
0: god is not the author of confusion and yet from the highest theological minds there's confusion on something as simple as the doctrine of salvation this is why it makes no sense to me you know when i think about that and i he he builds this straw man argument you know one of the greatest examples that calvinism is a sham is Ephesians 5, where he equates salvation with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to a marriage between a husband and a wife. It is one of the greatest examples that Calvinism is absolutely not true. Because when you think about that, when he gave those examples about who wrote Romans, Paul wrote Romans. God moved Paul to write Romans. I have no paradox in that at all. Was it God? Yes. Was it Paul, yes, it absolutely was. When I think about my own family, I mean, me and my wife, the two have become one flesh. It's the same concept. Is it me or is it my wife? Yes, it's both of us. When I think about what happens within my household, God holds me responsible for what is happening in my household as the father, as the husband. Are there things that are my wife's fault? For sure, but it's my house. There's no paradox there. There is absolutely no paradox there. Who lives my Christian life? I do. But I also know that if I'm walking outside of the will of God, not being submissive to Him, then there's going to be a break in my fellowship. And I know that His Spirit is inside of me convicting me and wanting me to live a life that is pleasing to Him. I know that. There's no paradox there. There is no paradox there for the Bible believer but they are theologians. They are not Bible believers. And no matter what they say, they can say all day long, the Bible's clear. Election, the scriptures are clear. No. No, what you say the scriptures say is not what the scriptures say. And that's what we want to get to. So what does all this mean with these definitions? The Calvinist Reformed theologian declares that before God created anything, he predestined or elected some people to receive salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. This election unto salvation is made by God's sovereign decree without any foreknowledge of the actions of the elected individuals. That is what they say. Now, I want to go into, go ahead and turn it with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to go into the alleged scripture support. Now, we spent some time already talking about Ephesians chapter 1 last week, so I just want to cover that very quickly. And I also want to bring in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which we didn't spend a whole lot of time on last week, and show you how they bring it in, but what the context actually says. So Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, and verse 11 is what they hang on, plus 2, 8, and 9. Now again, in just a little bit of review, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is all about the revealing of the the church. It's the revealing of the church. It is not about individual salvation, although it does speak about it, but it is the revealing of the mystery of the church And so when it says here in verse four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. What he is talking about there is that God has chosen us, plural, the group of people that would believe in Jesus Christ as their savior, that they would be holy and without blame before him in love that this group of people this us in verse 5 that they will be adopted as children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And how do you get into the us, the we, the all these plural forms that he's talking about? Well, that is verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye e believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. From the moment that you heard the gospel and you believed in the gospel, the Spirit of God moved in and sealed you into the day of redemption. The Calvinists would say, you must be regenerated first in order to believe. This verse says the exact opposite. That is not what the Bible says. They can make it sound all flowery and theological and so intellectual, but that is not what the scriptures say if you go with what it says you hear the word of truth first you have to hear it and then you have to believe it and then you are sealed and that is what puts you into the us and we in all these other areas of this entire book and that is what the scriptures say very clearly so that takes care of all that those verses let's go over to chapter two and let's take a look at verse eight and nine because they love to hang on these verses Chapter two, verse eight and nine. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Calvinists would interpret this as saying, see, this cannot be of yourselves. You are totally depraved, therefore God must unconditionally elect those that would be saved. And they even go as far as to say, for by grace are ye saved through faith. Remember the clip from last week? when they were interviewing Rick Warren, when John Piper was interviewing Rick Warren, he said, is it the grace? Is it the faith? What's the gift? Yes. Most Calvinists will say, the gift that God gave is faith. That's not the subject of the sentence. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, not, this grace is not of yourselves. You didn't create this. This is something that God authored. It, grace, is the gift of God. God has given us the grace that we may believe through faith in order to receive salvation. Believing, they would say that believing is a work. Believing is not a work. It is not a work. How can it be? Being baptized is a work. Knocking on doors, trying to witness to people, that is a work. Going to mass thinking that you are receiving grace from God through the wafer and the wine. That is a work. Belief is not a work. What you're saying as a Bible believer is that God said, I have made a way of escape if you would believe me. Will you believe me? Yes, I believe you, and I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. Okay, then we're good. That's what the scriptures teach. But they take verses like this And they read things into it, what it does not say. Ephesians is the revealing of the church. He's speaking to born-again believers. And in order to be in that family, it's Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. And then you become predestined. Because God is predestined before the foundation of the world that there will be a group of people. And that group of people, they will be mine. That's what this passage teaches. And don't let them rob you. They're good at it. They are really good at robbing people of God's blessings in this matter. Let's go over to the book of Romans, because we need some time to, to tackle Romans. Romans chapter 8. Another verse that they love to camp out on as well is Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Romans 28, 29, Romans eight twenty nine 29 and 30. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, God, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So what the Calvinists will do is that they will take verses 29 and 30, and they will say that what he says here with predestinate in both of these verses, they read into it, especially in verse 30, where they says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And that verse there, they say called unto salvation, but that's not what that says. That is not what that says. They have to read that into those verses. What God is saying here is, and it's very clear, if you just go step-by-step, word-by-word through the Bible that God has given us. For whom he did foreknow. Okay, what does it mean to foreknow something? To know before. Very clear. And you can just use a dictionary for it or you're just common sense. Foreknow. I know beforehand. So whom God knew beforehand, those people, verse, keep going in verse 29, he also did predestinate, okay? So now we have our predestination word here that they love. I'm sure they made plenty of t-shirts and hats about it. He did predestinate for what? What did he predestinate? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is not salvation, now, the process of being conformed to the image of his son begins with salvation for sure. But what God says is, who I foreknew, I am predestinating, I am determining beforehand that those people will be made into the image of my son. Now, anyone that is born again understands this clearly, clearly, because as you're living your Christian life, you have the spirit of God living inside of you, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14 that you're sealed with until the day of redemption. When you do something outside of the will of God, does not the Holy Spirit convict you like crazy? And he makes you so unsettled that you have to get right with him and with whoever else this matter might be uh, pertaining to in order to be back into fellowship with God. Anyone that has the Spirit of God knows that this verse, that's what that's talking about. God has predestinated not to salvation but there is a process where he will conform you into the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, continuing that thought, whom he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, them he also called and whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Any person that is born again begins this process of practical sanctification, where God has not only justified you from your sin, but now he is sanctifying you unto himself, conforming you into the image of his Son. And the last step of that is the day that you see your Lord face to face, And you are finally, finally redeemed once and for all, not just in soul and spirit, but in body as well. That is what Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, 31 are talking about. Because if that's the process, then look at verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This kind of Bible truth should give you great confidence and great assurance in your walk with God. That's what it should do. Not cast any doubt or confusion God is working you each and every day to be conformed to the image of his son, and he is not going to stop until the day that you are finally glorified. That is Romans 8. They will take it and they will twist it and they'll do whatever they want with it, but that is what the Bible says. The issue is are we going to believe that? Now, moving on to Romans 9, and this is where they really love to play in this sandbox. But I will tell you, and this is one, honestly, when I was working through things, remember I told you last week that when I'm reading the scriptures, there are certain scriptures where I have, to, I have to stop, and I have to think through this, and I have to think about the context. Romans 9 was the last nail that I had to undo in my walk with God about Calvinism, because every time that I would read Romans 9, I kept hearing Calvinistic theology theologies running through my head because they take this passage and they immediately apply it to salvation when that is not what's going on here. So a little context of knowing what the book of Romans is all about, first of all. This is the greatest book in the Bible dealing with Christian, the Christian doctrine of salvation. And in the process of explaining all this, Paul then gets to Romans 9, or God, whichever you prefer to say who authored the book of Romans. He gets to Romans 9... 10 and 11, and it's a giant timeout because he introduces a concept back in chapter two and chapter three about the Jewish people. And he's saying, well, what about the Jews? Because weren't the oracles of God committed unto them and did they not receive all these things from God? Absolutely. And he even says that their disobedience doesn't negate all this stuff. And so now he takes a timeout in 9, 10, 11 to explain what God is doing with the nation of Israel and how he dealt with them in the past how he's dealing with them in the present, in chapter 10, and how he's going to deal with them in the future in chapter 11. And so Romans 9 is all about the nation of Israel. And unless you doubt me on that, look at verse 1. "'I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh.'" Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So he's speaking about the nation of Israel. And notice two times in here, He says, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says that in verse 3. And then he says in verse 5, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. Now, there's a concept that is completely foreign to Calvinists and Reformed theologians. And that is, there is a difference in between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the greatest things that you can understand that will help you get a hold of the entirety of the Bible. There is a difference between the two. It is completely lost in new translations, but in your King James Bible, it is evidently clear. The kingdom of heaven is the literal, physical kingdom that God said that he would establish upon this planet with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That has been on his heart since day one. And I mean day one meaning before Adam and Eve were even alive in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Because there was a time where both of these kingdoms were actually unified as one. So there's this kingdom of heaven. Then there's the kingdom of God. And when you study it out and you search for the kingdom of God, you find out that it is the internal, invisible, spiritual kingdom where God desires to rule and reign on the throne of your heart. And both of these kingdoms are very important to God. One is physical, and the other one is spiritual. Now, when you go back through the scriptures, the pattern in the Bible that you find is that God does that which is physical first, and then spiritual. He says this very clearly in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The physical always happens first, and then the spiritual. So back when Adam totally forfeited the kingdom of heaven, and frankly, the kingdom of God at that point in time, because both existed on the planet at that point in time. Once he forfeited that, what do you see God do? God begins to take a people, and eventually it leads up to Abraham. And he calls out Abraham, and he says, I will make of you a seed. And from this seed, I will make a nation. And from this nation, I will select a king all of them physical. And that king will then usher in the restoration of not only the kingdom of heaven, the physical kingdom, but the kingdom of God. And it culminated with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all the Bible talks about. You read the Old Testament, you can't get over it. It's all physical, all of it. Leading up to the seed, to the seed being attacked, to the nation's to picking out certain families, to finally landing on the kingly line, and then leading up to Jesus. Because when Jesus came in the book of Matthew, he says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he also said the kingdom of God as well, in a couple places in the book of Matthew. But in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned. It's the only book in your entire Bible that mentions the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. And it's because in Matthew, Jesus Christ is presented as the king, He is the king over the nation of Israel, and he again and again and again proves who he is through his words and his works and the miracles up until chapter 12, where the nation of Israel completely rejects Jesus as their king. And once that happens, everything changes. He starts now teaching in parables. He starts taking his disciples aside, starts doing things completely different to the point where he is then crucified. And so now the kingdom of heaven has been rejected. That physical kingdom has now been rejected because it is Jesus Christ alone that can make that be fulfilled according to what God was setting up in the Old Testament. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he instituted the kingdom of God. And he brought to life that which was dead, that spiritual internal kingdom. Think about it on this terms, which of course the Calvinist is completely foreign to. The Calvinist would have you think that Adam and Eve we were saved just as we are in the church age. They would say that Moses, Elijah, Abraham, David are all born again. You will not find that anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere, nowhere. Adam and Eve were not born again. They were not. Were they saved? Yes, but they were not born again. Someone being born again did not happen until Jesus Christ landed his feet on this planet, and he began talking about it, and he was actually appalled because as he was talking to Nicodemus, who knew the law, he's like, you're a teacher of the law, and you don't even know these things? How do you not know this? I've been speaking about these things all along, which you've not been paying attention. And it says very clearly in John especially, but also later That those that are born again, it happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you take a look at this, the first time that you see someone actually being born again is Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit of God literally moves inside the physical bodies of those believers in the upper room. Biblically speaking, doctrinally speaking, that is the first time that anyone was ever born again. And that is when the church was started. And so this concept is completely foreign to them, completely foreign to them. So they go into this chapter and they start picking apart all these things and start shoving salvation doctrine into this chapter when this is not what's going on here. So in Romans 9, I want you to see a couple things here that articulate this very, very well. So Romans 9, and then take a look at verse, um, let's see here. Let's start off in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, in whom he will he hardeneth, and oh my goodness, they love these verses. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth yet, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the pot- the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Okay. The way they interpret this is they say, Okay, before these children were even born, God said, Jacob, I loved, I chose him, I saved him. Esau I've hated. I passed over him. I wanted nothing to do with him because it's according to the election of grace. And then if you have a problem with that, well, who are you to reply against God? Like, do you think like I think? And, and how, how are, why in the world? What if God wanted to pass over others and make them vessels fit unto destruction? And who are you to argue against that? That's what they say. Romans 9 is not dealing with individual salvation. It is dealing with people as nations. A cross-reference for verse 12, if you want to write this down, is Genesis 25, 23. Genesis 25, 23. And what he's quoting there, he says, God says very specifically to Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. Two nations. Jacob... Israel. Esau, the Edomites. He's not talking about individual people. And as you read through the Old Testament, and you start to read the story of Jacob and Esau, you know what you find? Esau and Jacob parted ways on poor terms, did they not? To the point where Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Okay, years later, there comes a point where Jacob is going to come face to face with his brother Esau, and Jacob is shaking in his boots. He is freaking out. (laughs) So much so that he sends everybody else before them because he's like, all right, if he's gonna slaughter, might as well kill them first before they come to me. And he sends gifts and he's hoping to try to win over his brother. And so finally he comes face to face with his brother and he's afraid and he bows to the earth. And you know what Esau does? He's like, hey, I love you, buddy. You're my brother, I've not seen you. And God has blessed you. He's blessed all that you have. Get up off the ground, let's catch up. And then they start spending time. And Jacob even says that when I saw you, that you had even the face of God toward me. Now, does that sound like someone that God hates? Because even when Jacob died, guess who was there to bury Jacob? Esau. Esau buried Jacob. I'm willing to bet you that Esau had a great walk with God. Because God said very, very specifically in Deuteronomy, when the Israelites were going into the promised land, he says, you're going to come to this territory, and it's the territory of the Edomites, on Mount Seir. Don't touch it. It's not yours. I have given it to the sons of Esau. That does not sound like someone who did not have a relationship with God. So when he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated, what he's saying here is, is that God is establishing the kingdom of heaven and he needs a seed and he needs a nation and he has chosen the nation from the seed of Jacob to be through which would come the Messiah, to build the kingdom through which the Messiah would come in order to bring redemption to Israel and frankly restore the kingdom of God as well. That's all Romans 9 is talking about. It has nothing to do with being born again. It has to do with the physical seed of the nation of Israel. And who stood in the way of the physical seed of the nation of Israel other than Pharaoh? Pharaoh had plenty of opportunities to respond, plenty. In fact, we know that when Pharaoh showed up with Moses, Pharaoh's first response when he says, the Lord has called me to come and says, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh said? Who is this God? Who is this God that tells me to do this? I'm not... He knew exactly who the God of Israel was. These people have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they worshiped God. You're telling me that the ruler of one of the most powerful countries on the face of the planet had no idea who God was? He knew exactly who the God of Israel was. He knew exactly. God waged war, not only against Pharaoh, but against the gods of Egypt. There is something very particular going on in the nation of Egypt at that time. Pharaoh is a perfect type of the Antichrist, and we already know the Antichrist is not going to be completely human. There's a good chance that Pharaoh was not also completely human either. And he was going up against some satanic powers, the fallen sons of God that had taken root over the physical seed of the nation of Israel. And so God says, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show in you my power. Because this is my people, my nation, and I don't care what you do, I will call them out. I'll redeem them to myself because my kingdom shall stand, the nation of Israel. God is very passionate about his people. And Romans 9 talks all about that. And any nation that gets in the way of God establishing the nation of Israel will be wiped out. This is not a new standard. When Christ comes at the second coming, it's going to be the exact same thing. It's the judgment of the nations. During the judgment of the nations, he's dealing with them as nations. And the condition of their release from judgment is how did you treat my people? How did you treat the nation of Israel? If you treated my people well, you'll be allowed into the millennial kingdom. But if you did not, I'm throwing you into hellfire. God is very particular about that physical nation, the nation of Israel. That is Romans chapter nine. And anyone that says anything otherwise, they are a heretic. That is exactly what's going on here. I wish I could spend more time talking about it, but I've already taken up too much time to talking about Romans 9. But Romans 9 is dealing with the nation of Israel and God establishing the kingdom of heaven. That is what really is going on here. All right, we don't have time to hit the next two verses Acts 13 48 in 1614, but those are a couple other verses they love to hang on. So maybe if we have some time in weeks to come, we will definitely hit those ones. Okay, so what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Actual scriptural truth, scripture truth. So again, I gave you all these references so you can see them on your own. But when it comes to election, what does the Bible say about election? Election is an individual or group of people God has chosen to serve him. It has nothing to do with salvation. Although salvation can be a part of it, it really has nothing to do with salvation. When you search the term election and you break down all these verses, because these are all the verses in your Bible that deal with the word elect or mine elect, you see that he talks about Jesus. And he's very clear. I got a couple references up on the screen for this one. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. God is speaking about Jesus. And in First Peter chapter two, verse six, he says, "Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Sion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that's Jesus, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded you find that God also speaks about the nation of Israel, like we just talked about in Romans 9, bringing about that physical seed, physical nation, physical king to bring the Messiah physically into the world. And he says in Isaiah 45, verse 4, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Before this even unfolded, before Israel even knew they had a plan, a part of this, this vast plan that God had to establish his physical kingdom, he called them by name, and he made that decision. And it also says in Isaiah 65 and verse 9, and I'll bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. See the physical aspect? And mine elect, Jesus, and also Israel shall inherit it, and my servants Shall dwell there. It also says that the body of Christ is elect as well, which is clear from what we even read in the book of Ephesians. But in Colossians 3:12, it says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. And also 1 Thessalonians 1:4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God the body of Christ is to serve God's will and God's plan the biggest thing for us being part of the body of Christ being part of the elect of God is that we are seeing the propagation of the kingdom of God the kingdom of God that is what we are supposed to be doing the kingdom of heaven God is going to pick that up right where he left off when he ascended up into heaven when he comes back again in like manner And he will take all the nations of this world by force. And he will establish his physical kingdom. The kingdom that we are supposed to be about now is the kingdom of God. That internal, invisible kingdom. That spiritual kingdom that rules and reigns in the hearts of individual believers. And then lastly, he also says about his elect that it encompasses angels. I charge thee thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing anything by partiality. So there are angels that serve God and serve his will. The Bible also says that predestination is to predetermine or foreordain, to appoint or ordain beforehand by an unchangeable purpose. And we actually have read all the passages in the Bible that deal with the word predestination. The only place it's found in the Bible is Romans 8, 29 and 30, Ephesians 1, 5, and Ephesians 1, 11. Predestination is only found in four places of your Bible. And yet, they use it as a giant soapbox declaring the doctrine of salvation. That is not what's going on here. And so that's what predestination is according to the scriptures, and we've covered those very well already. And then thirdly, election, predestination, and salvation are not synonymous They are not. Look with me over in Romans 11. Take a look at Romans 11, verse 28. Romans 11, verse 28. I remember when I hit this verse, we were going through the mysteries um, in in, uh, systematic theology in, in our Bible Institute. And I remember when I saw this verse, it was like it knocked me over. Like, knocked me over. Verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they context is talking about the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. The gospel and election are different. The word of God clearly defines this, that the gospel that saved your soul, through which you are born again, according to Ephesians 1:13 and 14, it is different. From election and when you understand that difference between the kingdom of god and kingdom of heaven it makes perfect sense perfect sense we are elect of god those of us that are born again because we are in the body of christ and we are serving god and we're serving his will and we're doing all that he wants us to do nation of israel they are also elect of god but what will are they supposed to serve to establish the kingdom of heaven that physical, literal kingdom. We, as part of the body of Christ, are elect to establish the kingdom of God. So as concerning the gospel, they're your enemies. They're your enemies right now. They don't like the gospel. Try to go to the nation of Israel and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Just try. It does not go well. Any of you that went you know exactly what you were trained to do when you were over there by Gentile ministries. And they have a certain way to go about it in order to reach the people. And notice how they do that. They get open doors through physical acts in order to open up spiritual conversations. They don't just jump in and start talking about Jesus. As soon as you talk with a Jew about Jesus, conversation's over. It's over. I remember one time I was in Costa Rica and we went out evangelizing and we hit this college campus and um, I was already all nervous anyway. I mean, it's just nerve-wracking sometimes you just go out on your own and start having conversations with people. So we get to this college campus, and I'm, I'm looking around, I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, there's a guy sitting on a bench. I can go, and I can sit down with him, and I can start talking to him about the gospel. So I sat down, started talking to him, spoke great English, and he's like, yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm like, oh, you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I can't even use like the 25 scriptures I have in my mind because they're all in the New Testament. I can't, I gotta, I, I'm like, all right, God, you gotta really direct me on this one. And so I'm like, okay, okay, Isaiah 53. I can go to Isaiah 53. So then I went to Isaiah 53 and I started using the Old Testament, his Bible, to try to get it a roundabout way to the gospel. It was terrible. I did a horrible job. (laughs) I tried though, but it was like one of my worst case scenarios. I find it that oftentimes when God wants me to take a step of faith, it's always the one thing that I fear. But I'm telling you, this is exactly what Romans 11 is talking about. When you read it within its context, you find out that the nation of Israel concerning the gospel, as you wrote here, that they are your enemies. They don't want anything to do with the gospel. They hated Jesus Christ, and they're not going to receive Jesus Christ until you get to the end of the tribulation after God has dealt with them on so many levels, after they've heard the gospel of the kingdom from the 144,000 witnesses, not the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the kingdom, and then they will physically see Jesus, and then they are going to weep. Like, what have we done? What have we done? And then they will receive him as their Messiah. We do not receive Jesus Christ as our Messiah. We receive him as our Savior. Big difference. But here it says, concerning the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, it's because one day God is going to make all of this come together when he establishes everything once and for all, physically and spiritually. And then lastly, and this is probably the, the, the most, the, as far as the summary of what we've been talking about, at this time in the church age, any person, any person that is willing to hear and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is born again. They are then sealed by the Holy Spirit and becomes a son of God. Look at all those references when you, have t- when you have some time. This salvation places them in the body of Christ and therefore chosen, predestined, and among God's elect. That is the most biblical way that I could write that, those two sentences. And believe me, I worked it over and over and over the Calvinists get this completely wrong. They say you are chosen and predestined, you are elected, and then that's what gives you salvation to become a son of God and to be born again and so you can hear and believe the gospel. That is not. This if you were to take this sentence and completely reverse it that is Calvinistic doctrine. But read it as it is and this is biblical doctrine. Subtle, very very subtle. So here's our conclusion. When R.C. Sproul said, if any person really embraces the doctrine of total depravity, the other four points in this five-point system more or less fall in line. He is absolutely correct. Since Calvinists and Reformed theologians believe in the doctrine of total depravity, they must believe that God sovereignly and unconditionally elects those he wills to redeem. They must. Their philosophical theology begins to close in on them and force them to interpret scriptures according to their doctrine rather than letting the Bible dictate their doctrine. This is a dangerous way to approach the Bible because Calvinists end up telling the Bible what it says rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. They create fables by pretending to see, believe, and teach what they call Bible truth that simply is not there. And error always begets error as they rest the scriptures under their own destruction. That is exactly what they do. And what's crazy to me is that they are totally blind. Totally. I have found that when you're dealing with people that believe in false doctrine, almost 99% of the time, you will not win them over. Unless... There's that 1% chance if God is doing something in them and just wrecks their life, I mean wrecks their life. It's very similar to the story of how I met my wife. I've shared the story before. You know, she was involved in charismatic doctrine, and it's the same thing with charismatics. I have met very few charismatics, very few, and I think you could even attest to this, that are willing to hear what the Bible actually has to say. And it's the same with Calvinists. They love to debate, they love to argue, they love to do all, they'll jump through any hoops that you want to jump through and it makes themselves feel better about their false position. But it is almost impossible to win them over. With my wife, God had to work on her over a period of months before I ever even met her. God was, he was doing things in her and he was, he was working her and working her hard on all this stuff all the way up to the point where I finally met her and I invited her to come to church and she had questions. And these questions that she had were legitimate questions because she took those same questions and she went to her church leaders and they would not answer her. I have been in similar scenarios with Calvinists, people that are genuinely searching, having genuine questions about Calvinistic doctrine and they belittle these people to their face. And they somehow treat them as if they, that they're, that they're dumb and they're stupid and they can't understand. Or like John MacArthur just said in the earlier video, who am I to try to reconcile these things? Just believe it. <laughs> okay. And so here, God has been working on my wife for months before I even met her, and she has these questions that her church leaders can't even answer. And I sit down with her, and all I do is I open the Bible. And I go, here's what the Bible says. And for the first time, she got an answer. And it wasn't from me. God used me as a vehicle, but it was from him. Because I, all I did was open the Bible, and I said, this is what the Bible says. And she was writing notes like a mad woman. And then she would go home, and she'd be reading her Bible, and she's praying, and she's working through all these things. And her parents thought she was nuts because she's never read her Bible like this before. What has happened to her? She's becoming brainwashed. She actually is in a good way because she's letting the word of God actually answer the questions that she has. And then she'd come back and you know what she'd say to me? Because I, I, I almost despise the next meeting because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not gonna go well. This is not gonna go well. This is not gonna go well. And she comes back and she's like, you know, I took all those things that you had, you had laid out and I read those verses and, and, and I have even more questions, but I will tell you, everything that you, that you said, that the Bible said, it's absolutely true. And I'm like, What? <laughs> I was floored. I was absolutely floored because I'm like, "Wait a minute. She believes the Bible." <laughs> and that's when I began to learn something. I can try to convince and persuade and articulate and develop the perfect strategy it means nothing. If that person is not willing to look at the scriptures. Like Jesus says, "Search the scriptures." If you're not willing to hear what I have to say, search the scriptures. Just look look at what I've already written to you and they will answer everything you need to know. And that is what they don't do. And it's almost impossible. Not impossible, but it is almost impossible because their theology forces them to do this. And then here's what happens. They get so far down the line of their false doctrine that in order for them to backtrack and say, I was wrong, requires a great amount of humility and their pride will not allow it. So rather than saying, I was wrong, they dig in deeper and they invest harder because if they're wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? very difficult. This is why when we teach people how to study study the Bible, one of the best rules of Bible study is the attitude factor. And that is you must be willing to change what you believe when the scriptures come against you and your theology and your beliefs and your doctrine. You must, because it's not about you and what you think it says. It's about what does the Bible say And to this day, God is still correcting my theology. And I am so thankful. I am so thankful that the Bible's in charge and not me. I am so thankful. God is so good to us, giving us the Bible. He is so good to us. We would do well to just believe what it says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. I pray that you would continue to stir in our hearts these truths, there were some things tonight that I know that might uh, some people may have heard for the first time, and it's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of mulling over and a lot of chewing and meditating on, but God, through your word and by your spirit, you were able to teach us all things. That's what you said very clearly before you even left this planet. You said that when I go, I'm going to send the Comforter, and he will guide you into all truth, and you tell us from the book of James chapter one that if we ask wisdom that you give it, and you give it liberally. It really comes down to our heart attitude and if we really want to know. And so God, I pray that we would always have that attitude, that we would let your Bible take precedence over everything, and whatever it says, that is what we believe. We would do well to do that because it will make us fruitful and profitable when we let you be in charge rather than creating our own version of Christianity. And, and trying to invent something that we think pleases you, and you've already clearly stated what we need to do in order to honor you. So, Lord, help us to be good ambassadors. Give us wisdom and discernment and discretion. And, God, keep giving us wisdom. We're going to need it more and more, and you know that. And you've given us an incredible book that can truly guide us in all areas of our life. I pray that we would never let any one of these words fall to the ground. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.